Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today in my office from central Hong Kong as we together discuss the final lesson in the Come Follow Me curriculum for 2019, the very last lesson in the New Testament covering the final 11 chapters of the book of Revelations. I'm posting this just before Christmas, so uh, if you're watching it before Christmas, I hope you have a Merry Christmas. If you're watching it after Christmas, hopefully you've had a, uh, a wonderful Christmas as well, and you've had a chance to, in the past week, since we did take a week off, uh, study about the Savior's birth and the miracles associated with that. And today in the, in the book of Revelation, tying into Christmas, we'll really... Um, The book of Revelation is such an interesting book, uh, in part because it's kind of the summation uh, of everything. Um, As you talk about, you know, as you read the Bible, uh, starting in the Old Testament, you get this idea of a God, uh, Jehovah, uh, the the, uh, pre-mortal Jesus Christ, who is a God of power, but he's also somewhat, comes across as a very exacting God, a somewhat strict God with the strict law of Moses. And then in the New Testament, uh, he is born in the flesh, of course, which is what we celebrated his birth. Um, and then while he's on the earth, his message is one of, of peace and of love and of mercy. And so we have both sides of that. Um, and then when you get to the book of Revelation, while he is, of course, full of love and mercy, he in some way goes back to this, this God of, of, of justice, um, of there's destruction of the wicked, and at the end of the day, an ultimate triumph. And so uh, the book of Revelation is an appropriate uh, culmination to the entire flow of the Bible. I think in particular the, the New Testament. Um, I believe it was Freud who made the observation that uh, Christ in Uh, the New Testament in particular, is the perfect man. He is the ideal of perfection. He is everything a human being could want to be in terms of his action, in terms of his behavior, in terms of his knowledge, and and what he stands for. Um, And so the book of Revelation is a necessary capstone to that depiction of Christ, and that not only is he this wonderful concept of perfection that we all should should strive for, but he is also an all-powerful God. He is also a God completely capable of saving his people, of saving this earth, and dispensing justice to those uh, who choose not to follow his perfect example, and, and, and making sure that those who follow him receive the blessings that they are expecting, while those that Uh, not only do not follow him, but in particular those that that fight against him uh, receive the justice that they deserve. Uh, And so we have this this book of Revelation here, this this great capstone, uh, in which we see 
the unfolding of the plan of salvation, in particular the earth's relation to the plan of salvation and its role within that plan. And if you recall last week, we, uh, in the first half of the book of Revelation, uh, we talked about how this is a vision from John and how it's not all, it doesn't always flow chronologically. Uh, what we did see in the chronological, uh, the, the chronological portion of the book, you have this uh, overarching narrative uh, provided in these uh, seven sealed portions of a book, each representing a thousand years. Last week, we got through the first six uh, very, very quickly. And then today we'll be discussing the, the seventh seal, the final uh, thousand years uh, leading up to the millennium and then eventually the uh, celestialization of the earth itself. But within that overarching narrative, you also have uh, where, where John breaks up the narrative in order to uh, go off on different uh, more detailed descriptions of whether it be those that are saved in the kingdom of God, a description of the kingdom of God. You also have descriptions of the kingdom of the devil that we'll be discussing today, uh, all kind of wrapped up within this narrative. And so part of the confusion behind the, plan, be, behind the book of Revelation, in addition to being the deep symbolism that we might not always be familiar with due to a 2,000-year removal from John and his culture and his time, um, you also have the fact that it's not presented chronologically, which can also be confusing. So we'll try to cover some of those things as we try to better understand the book of Revelation. Now, since we have 11 chapters, I am going to go through them quickly. Uh, I will read uh, verses that I think are pertinent and, and helpful in um, fleshing out some of the meaning of it. But a lot of the details I'm not going to spend too much time getting into um, and then at the end of the lesson, we'll spend a few minutes talking about what ultimately does this book of Revelation mean? What are we to take away from it? Because to be honest, from my point of view, as we talk about the details of Armageddon, of the second coming, of the millennium, and eventually the earth becoming the celestial kingdom, you know, to the extent that we can even look at these as if these are details of a, a factual events that will eventually uh, occur, rather than just simply uh, symbolic representations, or, or probably even put even better, a, uh, the attempts of a man 2,000 years ago to put into a language, which is not the language that we're reading from, uh, to put into that language a, a, a miraculous vision that he saw about deeply spiritual things, um, to try to put those into a language is in itself incredibly difficult. Uh, and, and of necessity really uh, requires a lot of symbolism, uh, description, depictions of things that, might, that aren't necessarily, uh, you know, he, he certainly lacks the vocabulary to describe the things that he saw. And so he's doing his absolute best to try to put it into language uh, that he is capable of using. And then, of course, you add a layer of translation on top of that. Uh, and then you have the fact that, you know, these are describing future events uh, that we're supposed to essentially try to guess on. And, you know, to be honest, I don't think the book of Revelation, uh, I, let's just say I think it's very limited in its ability to uh, provide a, a useful, uh, detailed description of events that are going to take place. I think it's much more a general description of what generally is going to happen. And so, you know, my initial reaction to the book of Revelation is, you know, a lot of these details, a lot of the symbols and what they mean, 
yeah, we can try and glean what we can from it, but it's the overarching narrative. It's this, uh, it, it's this greater story <clears throat> and, and the context and the meaning of that story that for me is more, is more powerful rather than, the, rather than trying to guess what some of these individual symbols might mean because at the end of the day, you know, I believe that uh, there is going to be a second coming. I believe that, uh, that, that Christ will come again and there will be a millennium, uh, a certain period of time in which Christ reigns, and I believe the earth will eventually become the celestial kingdom. The details as to how that happens, I, to be honest, really don't know and in a lot of ways don't really care. In some ways, it's analogous to the creation story. You know, we look in the first few chapters of Genesis or, or Abraham or Moses, wherever we're looking for our creation story, and you know, we see a story depicted there, you know, and there are some details there. But, you know, for me, I, I, you know, as I think about that story and I compare it with what I've learned and what I know uh, from my exposure to scientific explanations about the creation of the world, uh, the conclusion that I come away with is the description that God is giving in Genesis that we have preserved from us through holy prophets in Genesis is not a physical description of what, is a, what actually happened when the world was created, but rather it is a spiritual description. And so the lessons that I am to take away from that description of uh, the creation of the world are spiritual lessons, not physical lessons. If I want to understand how the world physically was created, I'm going to look at a uh, geography book or a geology book, or some other scientific book, uh, and, 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 and you know, let the scientists explain how the, the detailed physical process of the earth was created. But if I want to understand the spiritual creation of the earth, why it was created, what God was doing uh, while he created it, I'm going to look to Genesis and extract spiritual lessons for that. And so I think we can take those same principles and apply it to the book of Revelation. If I'm going to look for physical descriptions as to what is actually going to happen, I, I, I'm going to take anyone that claims to know what physically is going to happen, I'm going to take any of those claims w with a heavy dosage of salt uh, because I'm, I'm not sure that we, anyone really knows the physical changes that are actually going to happen. You know, discussions of all of the continents coming together, uh, massive hailstorms and earthquakes, all of these physical descriptions. Are some of them going to happen? Sure. I don't know when. I don't necessarily know where. Certainly don't know how that's going to happen. So in some ways, I'm not going to worry about those. But for me, what's more important from the book of Revelation is what are the spiritual lessons that I can take away? What does it mean for me, for my testimony, for my relationship with my Savior, uh, for my relationship with my family and my loved ones? Those are the lessons that I believe the Lord thinks are more important for me to take away. And so those are going to be the areas where, uh, that, that, that I'm going to try to focus as I uh, go through the book of Revelation and try to understand and seek for my own personal revelations as I read the book of Revelation. So with that caveat, uh, let us begin in chapter 12, which is uh, where we'll be covering today, um, and uh, where we'll be starting today. And we begin uh, by noting that the Joseph Smith translation of chapter 12, interestingly, completely changes uh, the order of some of the verses, especially the first few verses at the beginning. Um, so I think it's helpful if, when reading chapter 12 uh, to keep that in mind. And 
Um, I think the order in the JST version of chapter 12 actually makes more sense. And in there we have a, a woman who we are told, uh, <clears throat> who we learn represents uh, the church or the spiritual aspects of the kingdom. And she brings forth a child. And this child represents the political kingdom uh, of God. And this kingdom of God, which is both a, again, both the church itself as well as a political kingdom, um, is opposed by a dragon who represents Satan. And it's the, uh, the same beast, we're told, that drew away a third part of God's children in the war in heaven. Um, so I guess several interesting, interesting things to think about from, from this story. First, this idea that we first had the woman who was representing the, the spiritual kingdom or the church, and out of her flows uh, the political uh, kingdom. And it's interesting to think about, especially in the American context, and you know, being a lawyer, having gone to law school, uh, being somewhat steeped in our constitution and the concepts that, that go with that. Um, this idea of separation of church and state is obviously very, something that's very important to me, something I strongly uh, believe in. Um, but this idea that we have, start with a church and then a political kingdom uh, flows out of that, I'll just say to me is, is an interesting uh, notion. Um, and it's in some ways not a surprise then that uh, the world or the, the, this red dragon here uh, who does represent Satan um, is attacking that. Um, you know, in, in some ways they're, you know, I'm supportive of the idea that the church itself, the spiritual kingdom, should be separating itself from the, uh, from the political kingdom. And so when the church gets into the political realm, and I think one of the signs of the latter days is that this is going to be increasingly necessary, that the church uh, gets involved in the political. And I think that's certainly something that we are seeing uh, in the U.S. Uh, in particular, but really all throughout the world, is that um, we're seeing that the personal in our lives is all of a sudden become becoming political. In the U.S. especially, as government gets bigger uh, and more areas of our lives are controlled uh, by, the, by, by the government, and I don't want to get too, uh, you know, too political here, um, but uh, suffice it to say, as our lives are increasingly uh, regulated by government and everything uh, becomes so political uh, in our lives, you know, think of any, even sports now have become political. Uh, certainly movies have become incredibly political. Uh, so many areas of our lives have become political. And as our lives itself become political and are increasingly politicized, um, it's going to be inevitable that the church of God uh, gets involved in political aspects of our lives. And then when it does so, uh, you know, of necessity, in order really to defend itself, um, it's not going to be a surprise when Satan uh, rises up and opposes those, the, the church's political stance, the political kingdom, uh, if you will. There's something to, to think about there. And so we, and, and then interestingly, John draws a parallel between um, Satan attacking uh, the political aspect of, of the church, this political kingdom that flows out of the spiritual kingdom itself. Um, he compares it and reminds us that this, uh, there's a precedent for this that happened before, and that was uh, in the war in heaven. And the way in which 
those of us who were on the winning side of the war in heaven, the ways in which we remain faithful are spelled out in uh, chapter 12, verse 11, in which uh, we read, and this is uh, the JST, uh, For they have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their own lives, but kept the testimony even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and ye that dwell in them. And so the way in which we are able to maintain our loyalty to the kingdom of God in an increasingly politicized world is that, uh, you know, through the blood of the lamb and by the word of our, of their testimony. And so that is how we were able to overcome Satan in the war in heaven and how we're going to remain true to God through the blood of the lamb and by uh, the strength of our own testimony. It is interesting to note that um, it's just a very interesting concept that the way in which we overcame Satan in the pre-mortal realm in this war in heaven before we even came to this earth was through the blood of the lamb, through a sacrifice, through the atonement that was still at the time of war of the war in heaven to take place in a world that, as far as we know, hadn't even been created yet. Uh, but yet it was through the blood of the lamb that we were able to overcome Satan in the pre-mortal realm. And it's the same through the blood of the lamb and through our testimonies that we're going to be able to come overcome him um, in the uh, political discord of our days and, and the ways in which we will remain true and faithful uh, to, to Christ in these times. Anyway, as a result then of uh, this political strife, uh, the church goes into the wilderness for three and a half years and uh, again, we talked about the importance of numbers last week, seven being the dominant number uh, throughout the book of Revelation, uh, being a sign of uh, completion and perfection. Three uh, has to do with the divine or with God. Four has to do with uh, the temporal or the earthly. And then three and four, or uh, God plus man combined, is perfection. And we have the number seven being a sign of perfection. Now, of course, three and a half is exactly half of seven. So that's a sign of a period that was not uh, completed. It's a sign of a, of a temporary uh, period in which what <clears throat> has to be done has not yet been done. And so we have the church going into the wilderness for three and a half years, this period of apostasy. Now, uh, we should remind, uh, remind you that in this discussion, starting in chapter 12, Going into 13 and chapter 14 as well, um, remember how we're talking about our general timeline, starting with uh, the first seal going through seven, and then we talked about how there were uh, intermittent uh, uh, discourses in between. Um, these few chapters are not part of that timeline, but these are part of these uh, intermittent discourses in which John talks about uh, di different areas, other than this uh, <clears throat> sequential flow uh, of the history of the world. Um, and so we go to chapter 13, having talked about this political strife uh, and, and the kingdom of God going into the period of apostasy. Uh, now in chapter 13, we have this discussion of Satan uh, and his kingdom, which is likened unto a beast that arises out of the sea with the name of blasphemy written on its seven heads. So this terrible beast coming out of the sea with seven heads um, 
this idea of uh, blasphemy written on seven heads or its seven leaders, uh, you know, emphasizes this notion that uh, the the kingdom of Satan has absolutely zero respect for those things which are sacred. Um, it's willing to put down God, willing to put down those that believe in God, um, and, and it really is in all ways anti-Christ. Um, and so this beast rules and is worshipped on the earth also for a period of uh, three and a half years. And then we have another beast who comes out of the earth who has two horns uh, like a lamb in verse 11. So it's interesting to note that um, all throughout the book of Revelation, Christ is referred to as the lamb. Um, and it's also interesting to note that this is the only place other than, uh, I believe, one place in the Gospel of St. John in which Christ is baptized, in which uh, Christ is referred to as the Lamb or the Lamb of God. Uh, otherwise, it's only in the book of Revelation that we get this name uh, for Christ, at least in the New Testament. Of course, in the Book of Mormon, uh, the name Lamb of God is everywhere. Uh, but but in, in the New Testament, it's reserved for the book of Revelation. Um, and it's also interesting to, to consider, uh, you know, that this is a very interesting title, the Lamb, um, for a being who in this book eventually overcomes and destroys his enemy. Uh, when you think of a lamb, you think of, you know, a fluffy, cute uh, animal that is, that is gentle, um, wandering in a green field, you certainly don't think of an all-powerful God who destroys his enemies and eventually casts them into lakes of fire and brimstone. Um, that's not what you think of when you think of a lamb, but we have this contrast here then between the loving and the gentle God who's very approachable and the God who <clears throat> is powerful enough to destroy these wicked seven-headed uh, evil dragons. Um, so, but anyway, so we have this beast that comes out of the earth uh, that is like unto a lamb, and so he is, a, he is a, a, a fake Christ. He is a counterfeit. He is working miracles, causing everyone to worship the beast that came out of the sea, and he has uh, power to give life to the image of the beast uh, in verse 15. And those that don't worship him are killed, and those that don't take the mark of the beast are prevented from, uh, from participating in society. And so we have this horrible kingdom of Satan that, that rules over the earth, uh, that is anti-God, that, that blasphemes God in every way possible. And if you don't respect it, if you don't bow to it, if you don't participate in it, you are cut off from society and eventually killed. Um, and it's able to work false miracles uh, as if it's giving life uh, to the image of the beast. And so it's a, it's a terrible uh, image, a terrible kingdom, and it's opposing God in every way possible. And so in chapter 12, we have a description of the kingdom of God uh, who is opposed by Satan. And then chapter 13, we have a picture of Satan's kingdom. And then in 14, uh, we get the final outcome of the clash between these two kingdoms. And so he, uh, John in chapter 14 sees Christ standing on Mount Zion with those who have the Father's name written on their heads. So in chapter 13, we had those uh, with the sign of the beast written upon their head, which is the number 666, and we're not really quite sure exactly what that means. But we have those 
uh, with 666 written on their forehead on the one hand, and they are opposed by those who have uh, the, the name of God written on their foreheads uh, on the other. And this idea of writing something on your forehead, I think, is, is an interesting one. It you know, makes it completely clear to the entire world whose side you are on if something is written on your forehead. <clears throat> and then, uh, so in chapter 14 and verses 4 and 5, we have this beautiful description of those who are saved and who are with God, where it says, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And then in uh, verses uh, 6 and 7, we have this uh, further uh, description of events that take place. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Now we often think of, uh, and I think rightly so, we, we associate this angel that has the everlasting gospel uh, flying in heaven. We associate that with Moroni. Um, and it's certainly that, that's one way to interpret that. Um, I don't know it's particularly uh, correct, though, to associate it with one individual person. I think it's more of a composite uh, description of an angel. And when we think of an angel in scriptures, we think it's really just a, a heavenly messenger, someone who is conveying the message that God wants us to hear. And so we have this messenger here who is con- conveying the message of God. And that message is, in verse 7, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And that is certainly uh, a message that Moroni was conveying as he came and really, you know, started off the restoration process. You know, but it's also the same message that really every missionary that goes out and serves a mission is also conveying. So anyone who is preaching the gospel, that is calling people to repentance, to, encouraging pe- to encourage people to enter into covenants with God, uh, they are also uh, in ways uh, similar uh, to to this angel here. Uh, okay, and so uh, we see that uh, that Christ comes, um, and it's announced by this angel, and uh, the result is that uh, Satan is overcome in in chapter fourteen, uh, and then in chapter fifteen, then, and we're still in this uh, intermittent um, discussion here. Uh, John sees a vision of the. Uh, celestial kingdom. So after Christ has come, after it's been announced, and uh, Christ defeats this horrible beast upon the earth, then the earth becomes the celestial kingdom. And we have a description of that in uh, John 15, uh, sorry, Revelation 15, uh, verses 2 and 3. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are they are thy ways, thou King of saints. So we have this beautiful description of the celestial kingdom 
how the earth has become this sea of glass mingled with fire, and it's for those who have overcome uh, the temptations and the challenges of Satan. Uh, and it's worth looking at a, another scripture that describes uh, the, the earth in its <clears throat> celestialized form in a similar manner. And for that, we turn to uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 130, going to read verses 6 through 9. The angels do not reside on a planet like this earth, but they reside in the presence of God on a globe like a sea of glass and fire, where all things for their glory are manifest, past, present, and future, and are continually before the Lord. The place where God resides is a great Urim and Thummim. This earth in its sanctified and immortal state will be made like unto crystal and will be a Urim and Thummim to the inhabitants who dwell thereon, whereby all things pertaining to an inferior kingdom or all kingdoms of a lower order will be manifest to those who dwell on it, and this earth will be Christ's. So here we have a beautiful description of the ultimate glory of uh, this earth as it is turned into a sea of glass, a literal Urim and Thummim, uh, where Christ will come, where Christ will dwell, where it will be his, and all other inferior kingdoms um, will give way uh, to this celestialization uh, of the earth. And then uh, in chapter 15, starting in verse 5, uh, we then get back to this chronicle discussion of the, uh, <clears throat> of, of the seven seals uh, in the book that, is, that permeates throughout uh, the book of Revelation. And so we had this um, intermittent discussion in which we had the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan, God overcame the kingdom of Satan, and then the earth became the celestial kingdom. And now we get back to this discussion, and we're going to see essentially uh, the, the same thing play out. Um, so we get back to this chronological spiritual history of the earth, um, and then as, as, we, as we start in uh, chapter 15, back to this uh, spiritual history of the earth, we see seven angels, and each of them have a golden vial, uh, and each, within each of the vial is a plague, uh, representing the wrath of God. And then in chapter 16, the seven vials are each opened and each are bringing their own, uh, their own curse or destruction upon, upon all those who are uh, unrepentant. And uh, you can go through each of the uh, seven vials or each of the seven curses. Um, they're somewhat interesting. I think uh, in some ways they're parallels to, uh, I, I like to in some ways compare them to the seven pl uh, to the ten plagues uh, that uh, the Lord used to inflict upon the Egyptians uh, before uh, the children of Israel left Egypt uh, led by Moses. There's some similarities. You have water turning to blood. Uh, you have uh, frogs there. You have uh, darkness. Um, and just as there, I think one of the underlying meanings behind all of these a plagues that the Lord opens upon uh, <clears throat> the, the inhabitants of the earth is to uh, remind them that he is in charge, that he is in control. It's, you know, you, you, you think your son is so big and powerful? Um, well, here's some darkness to remind you that I, the Lord God, am more powerful than the sun. Uh, you think your, your seas and your rivers are important to your life. Well, let's have them turn to blood and remind you that I am more important than your seas and your rivers. And so each of these uh, curses 
the coming out of these vials can be uh, thought of, I think, as ways in which the Lord is simply reminding the inhabitants of the earth that I am the one that's in charge here. I created this earth. This earth is mine. It fulfills my purposes. And to the extent that your actions are not consistent with my purposes, uh, you have no expectation of protection, of safety, uh, or of grace or of the mercy uh, that I desire to provide to you. Uh, after these seven vials are open, uh, essentially we have the entire world gathered together at a place called the uh, uh, Armageddon uh, that we translate today as being Armageddon, which was the site of the historical site of several uh, devastating battles uh, in Old Testament history. Um, and it is you know, thought, uh, at least based on readings of Revelation, that uh, in this place of Armageddon, uh, the world will gather together for one final battle, uh, after which uh, all of the wicked will be destroyed. Uh, one verse that's worth uh, reading uh, in chapter 16 is verse 15, which it says, uh, in, w- in which the Savior says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. As we talk about uh, garments and and nakedness, um, I'm reminded of Adam and Eve uh, in the Garden of Eden, who, uh, upon recognizing uh, their own mistakes, realizing that they had made mistakes, uh, and realizing their need of, of protection, uh, they tried to cover their nakedness with, with fig, fig leaves, obviously, uh, were unsuccessful in doing so. And so God made garments for them, representing uh, his promise that he would send a savior to cover their nakedness. Um, and then, of course, since God made those garments out of the skin of a lamb, uh, a lamb had to give its life, had to be sacrificed in order for them to cover up their nakedness obviously alluding to the eventual sacrifice of the Lamb of God that would cover their spiritual nakedness. And so, as I read, of, as I read this verse, uh, reminding us to keep his garments lest, uh, lest we walk naked, uh, I think what one, one way to understand that is we need to make sure that we are keeping our covenants. That is the only protection that we will have in this battle of Armageddon, in this battle against the world, the only way that we can prevent our vitals from being exposed, the only way that we can make sh- we can be certain that we will have the covering, the protection, and the safety that we need is by sticking closely and by uh, diligently following uh, and uh, our, the covenants that we have entered into with God. Chapter uh, 17 um, we are shown uh, this, a, the, the, uh, the kingdom of the devil who is represented uh, as, a, as a whore, as a harlot here. So we can contrast this with in chapter 12 where we had the kingdom of God uh, who was a, a woman who birthed uh, a son. She was a, a mother. Um, here in chapter 17, we have uh, the opposite of a mother. We have a woman that does not use her power uh, her incredible power as a woman uh, to give life to others, but rather she uses that ability to uh, seduce and to ultimately uh, drag, down, drag down those around her 
as a harlot. Uh, so she uh, she is a she is a whore and a prostitute. Uh, she has improper relations with the political leaders of the world. Uh, she is dressed in fancy apparel, including purple and scarlet clothes, which are <clears throat> uh, which are colors reserved for reserved for royalty. Um, and and certainly, uh, when we think of uh, scarlet, we think of Christ uh, and and the blood that he shed. <clears throat> So she uh, is, is, is dressed in fine clothing. Um, she dresses herself in blasphemy. And she is uh, drunk with the blood of the saints, it says. And so she is, she, she is everything that a woman should not be. Um, she rides on a beast uh, in verses 8-11, which was and is not, uh, is, is the phraseology that is used in verses 8 and 11, which I think is interesting and profound. Uh, you know, the, the thing that carries her, the thing that, that moves her, her source of mobility and power is temporary. It was and is not. It used to be, but it won't be in the future. It is not something that she can count on being there. And as a result, um, we read verses 12 uh, and 16. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. All right, uh, somewhat graphic and gruesome there. Uh, but the idea is this, this whore that the kings of the world have uh, used to gain their power they have no love for her. They have no affection or deep feelings for her. They use her for a time, and once they've gotten what they want out of her, they discard her, and here it gruesomely says even eat of her flesh. There, there is no love here. This is not a relationship built on love. It is one based simply on lust and, and power grab and taking advantage uh, of other people. And as, and, you know, so the, the message is clear here. If that is where our source of power is, if, if our focus in our lives and our priorities are with the things of the world, <clears throat> those things are temporary. <clears throat> they will use us. They will spit us out when they're done with us. And there is no love. There is no mercy. There is no grace. And ultimately, there is no salvation with the things of the world. Uh, still in chapter 17, verse 14. These shall, make more, these shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So even though we have these kings of the world, uh, everyone who is gaining their power from this uh, wicked whore uh, who has is giving her power and whose power comes from Satan. So even though we have uh, the, the political powers of the world uh, gathered together fighting those who believe in Christ, uh, those who uh, are with the Lamb, the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Um, and, and so that is the promise uh, that we can look forward to as we remain faithful to Christ rather than being faithful to uh, this great whore uh, of the earth who uh, who uses her power uh, to 
uh, strengthened the, the rulers of the earth who fight against the Lamb, who, of course, then in turn, uh, once they have gotten their power from this whore, uh, no longer desire uh, or have any affection or use or need for her. Uh, we then turn to chapter 18, in which we have the, destruct de the destruction of Babylon. And Babylon here is also a representation of the world. It's everything about the world. It is the political power of the world. It is the money of the world. It is the success of the world. Everything worldly can be surmised in the concept of, of Babylon. And just as uh, this harlot, once uh, in chapter 17, as she died and was no longer of use to those of the world, Babylon is also destroyed, uh, causing those that, uh, that, that, that loved her and that took advantage of her and benefited from her, they also weep for Babylon's destruction. But again, it's not the weeping of a, a, if a loved one crying, uh, you know, in agony because they will miss uh, the, you know, cr crying in sorrow because uh, someone that they love has passed, but rather this is the, the crying uh, uh, of those who can no longer take advantage of Babylon. Um, and so they are sad uh, that they will no longer be able to get the benefits um, to, to take advantage of the, everything that the world had to offer them. A, a good reminder to all of us that the, that the success and the glory and the money and the glitz of the world is all temporary. It all will fade one day. It is not lasting. Um, and then in verse 4, we are commanded, this is to be our relationship with Babylon. Verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, meaning Babylon, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. So we are commanded not to be those that take advantage of the world, that are especially focused on the world, our position in the world, uh, all of the comforts and the luxuries of the world, we are to come out of those. We are to be a spiritually focused people. And it's only as we come out of Babylon, as we put off Babylon, that we will not be wrapped up in Babylon's destruction. And then as we move to chapter 19, then, we now are beginning to get the ultimate triumph of Christ. Uh, chapter 19, verses 7 through 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And so we have ultimately uh, this marriage between the Lamb of God and his bride. And, so, and, and, this, and, and she is arrayed in fine linen uh, that are clean and white, uh, she is pure, and she is ready to receive her perfect husband. So when you compare uh, the whore in chapter 17, who is uh, abused, uh, who provides, uh, who, who gives up of herself, of that which is most uh, sacred to the kings and to the rulers of the world, and who have no love for her, when you compare this prostitute in verse 17 to this bride... In chapter 19, in chapter 17, you have a woman who is everything that a woman is not supposed to be. Whereas in verse 19, you have this beautiful, perfect bride who is ready to form a union with the Lamb of God. That she, through 
with him together uh, can reach her full potential. Whereas in 17, <clears throat> the woman did not receive her full potential, but rather was discarded once she was used and abused. Uh, in chapter 19, verse 10, And I fell at his feet to worship him. And this is uh, the messenger that delivered the invitation to the marriage supper. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And of course, it's that last line uh, that makes this verse uh, so powerful and so meaningful. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We talked about this verse uh, many lessons ago <clears throat> as we were reading the Pauline epistles in which Paul often talked about the spirit of prophecy and its import. Here we are told what the spirit of prophecy means. It is the testimony of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and how is that so? The spirit of prophecy I'm sorry, the testimony of Jesus Christ lets us know that eventually everything is going to be okay. It lets us know what's going to happen in the future to the extent that the spirit of prophecy is the ability to look into the future, to know what is going to come. <clears throat> the only sure thing that is going to come is the ultimate triumph of Jesus Christ. And so as we have a testimony in Christ, we have certainty of knowing what is going to happen. We won't know all the details as to how we're going to get there, but we know that through our testimony in Christ, and if we remain faithful to that testimony, ultimately we will be saved by Christ and his kingdom. Uh, chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with the vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is a testimony about, uh, a prophecy about the Savior ultimately coming, entering into the marriage feast, ready to take his perfect bride, riding upon a white horse, with eyes as flame as fire, and on his head are many crowns, symbolizing his glory and his power. And ultimately, he is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And you know, in verse thirteen, clothed with the vesture dipped in blood. Uh, you know what powerful imagery of the red, uh, crimson uh, vesture that he is wearing, as opposed to the crimson. Vesture wore by uh, the whore in chapter 17. We have uh, the, the we have the clothing of Christ, who is dipped in blood. Of course, being His blood, His atonement that gives Him His power uh, in part that makes it possible for Him to save His people. 
beautiful, uh, beautiful imagery here uh, of, of, of the entrance of Christ in order to save his people and to overcome. And, of course, ultimately, um, those that follow the beast at the end of uh, chapter 19 are destroyed uh, and Christ <clears throat> uh, triumphs. Uh, as he enters, as he enters into the scene, and those that follow him, um, with those that follow him as well. Chapter twenty, uh, we have Satan being bound for a thousand years, uh, after which he is loosed again, and uh, and and then after that, uh, Satan and his followers are cast into lake of fire and brimstone to be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Um, whereas in verse six. Uh, those that die uh, during this thousand-year period in which Christ is bound, in which we, of course, refer to as the millennium, it says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, that they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So we have a description of here what we refer to as the morning of the first resurrection. Um, and those that come forth at that time are not subject to the second death. The second death, of course, being the separation of them and God, but rather are resurrected and will be with God, with Christ, where they will reign with him uh, together. And then verses uh, 12 and 13 in chapter 20. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. Uh, if you remember a long time ago, we used to do scripture mastery in seminary, and this was one of those scripture mastery verses. A simple reminder that each of us are judged according to our works. It is ultimately uh, our works that will determine uh, whether or not we are worthy to be counted with the Lamb of God, to be with him, where, to reign and to rule with him, become priests and priestesses in his kingdom. <clears throat> of course, that is not what ultimately saves us. We are, of course, saved by the grace of God. But whether or not we will qualify for that grace whether or not that grace will be uh, effectual upon us, making us worthy to receive those blessings, ultimately has to do with our own actions, whether or not we have accepted Christ, whether or not we accept his gospel, and whether or not we will receive the blessings that only he can make possible through his grace and through his power. Moving to chapter 21, um, and here, after Christ <clears throat> has defeated all of his enemies, after Satan has been cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, and along with all of his followers, uh, the earth is renewed and becomes the celestial kingdom. Uh, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Just love verse 4. Uh, we have this, we've just seen this, this vision of an all-powerful Christ ascending from heaven, 
conquering Satan, casting him out, cleansing and transforming the earth. It is the sign of a truly, truly powerful being. But in verse 4, we have a description of this powerful being who is more powerful than any others. And what does he do? He wipes away the tears from our eyes. What a gentle and a beautiful and a tender action that is to wipe away someone's tears. And that is what Christ does for us. He takes all of our sadness, all of our tears, and wipes them away with his hand, with his gentle touch, removing all of those things that cause us sadness, making it possible for us to live our lives now with the promise of knowing that ultimately all of the things that make us sad now will eventually be overcome by Jesus Christ. Whether it be disappointment, whether it be our own weaknesses and shortcomings, whether it be our separation from those we love, whether it be the mistakes of others uh, that impact us and hurt us deeply, whatever it is that makes us sad, whatever it is that causes us tears, the promise is that Christ, this omnipotent being, loves us personally and will take us in his arms and will wipe away the tears from our face with his gentle touch. Verses 6 and 7. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Again, beautiful promises that await for us, showing us the power of God, plus the intimate personal relationship that we can have with him, that of a father and of a son, of a parent and a child. What a beautiful, personal, intimate profound relationship that is and we can have that and we should have that with the most powerful being uh, in the universe the angel then shows john the the city of god it is this enormous this beautiful city with 12 gates each made of a different precious stone each gate representing one of the 12 tribes and we talked about how 12 uh, is a number that symbolizes uh, the order or the power of god uh, the 12 foundations under the gates, each of them, on, written on each of them is the name of one of the 12 apostles. And uh, the city is a square that is 12,000 furlongs, which is 1,400 miles square. Um, it's absolutely enormous if we are to take it literally. Um, but anything and, and you know multiplied by 1,000 essentially means eternal, goes on for forever. So this is a, a, a forever city. Uh, verses uh, chapter 21 still verses 22 and 23 and I saw no temple therein for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it and the city had no need of the sun neither of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God did lighten it and the Lamb is the light thereof that's an interesting verse this idea that there is no temple But in some ways it makes sense because Christ is there. And if Christ is there, we do not need the temple. The purpose of the temple is a place in which we can uh, come closer to Christ. It is a place in which we can go and enter into covenants. And as we keep those covenants, 
we walk along a path that brings us back into the presence of God. But if God is with us, we no longer need that temple. Another way to think of it is the word temple uh, is related to a template. Uh, A temple is the place where we are to go and review the template for our lives, the pattern for our lives that we are to follow. Well, of course, Christ is the ultimate template. And therefore, when we have that perfect pattern, when we have that template there with us, we no longer need the temple. Verses 25 through 27. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So this enormous, beautiful city is also pure. There is no sin inside, and those that are not worthy to enter it are forbidden from entering into it, even though its gates are always open. So in some ways, it's contradictory there. Its gates are always open, and everyone is always welcome, but those that are not worthy to be there are not permitted to be there. In some ways, it's like our, in that way, it's like, a, like our own temples. We would love it if everyone in the world could come in and see the inside of an LDS temple because they were worthy to hold a temple recommend, because they had entered into covenants and were keeping those covenants. But of course, in order to keep the temple pure, we have to limit who is able to come in. But it's always open, and we want everyone that can to come and enter into it. Chapter 22, last chapter in the New Testament. Read verses 1 through 5. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Again, we have this beautiful description of the celestial kingdom. The earth has become the celestial kingdom. It has become heaven, and there is no night Uh, There is this beautiful, pure river of water, of life, uh, clear as crystal. We have this this tree of life there, uh, which those who have entered into into the celestial kingdom freely partake of. And uh, there's no sun or candle or other lights needed because God is there. Now, of course, this pure river is symbolic of Christ. The tree of life is symbolic of Christ. Uh, The light that is in the celestial kingdom emanates from Christ. Everything in the celestial kingdom is a testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, So something to keep in mind there, that Christ is the light, the source of light within the celestial kingdom. And everything in there is a constant testimony of him. Just as when you go to the temple, as you look around, everything in the temple points to Christ. So it is in the celestial kingdom. We'll end with verses 12 and 17. 
And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every, to give every man according to his work, according as his work shall be. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. And that is how uh, I, I think an appropriate way of ending uh, our study of the New Testament that everyone who will come and partake of, the, of Christ and partake of his blessings, that we all can return to live with him in his celestial kingdom, is welcome to come. Now, what does this all mean? What does this book of Revelation mean? Again, as I talked about earlier, uh, you know, some of the stuff that we talked about, uh, you know, we talked about beasts coming out of the water and out of the ground. We talked about dragons with multiple heads. We talked about um, harlots and uh, giant wars of Armageddon, uh, people being thrown into uh, lakes of fire and brimstone. What, what, what all does this mean? Again, I'm of the view that some of these details, you know, exactly what they all mean, I, 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 I think it's not possible to know yet. Um, but the spiritual lessons that we can take away from this, even though the physical details, in my mind, I don't think we can know. And, and you know, we can speculate and guess, and that might be, you know, kind of fun and interesting. But the spiritual takeaways that I get, uh, for me, from the book of Revelation are these. First of all, uh, the book of Revelation teaches us that the good guys will win. It teaches us that Christ will ultimately triumph. And those that are with Christ will ultimately be those that triumph over those that are against him. <clears throat> which leads to the second lesson, which is justice will ultimately be served. Those that reject Christ in this life will pass, will, will, will not be eligible to receive of his blessings. And they will be left to their own efforts. And those efforts will be insufficient, especially <clears throat> if they put themselves up against Christ justice will be served and those that fight against God and his righteousness the end will not be good for them third God has things under control even if sometimes it doesn't appear like that again because we have testimony of Christ we know what's going to happen we can prophesy what the end is going to be and it will be good for us we will be blessed we will receive everything that the Lord wants us to receive. Even if sometimes in our lives it appears that things might be spinning out of control, God is ultimately in control, and we can trust in him and in his power. <clears throat> and finally, Christ has the power to save us. He is all-powerful. His power is will save us if we put our faith in him. <clears throat> Sometimes that can be a challenging thing to do, to put our faith in him, especially as we live in Babylon, especially as we live in a world in which the leaders of the world gain their power not through Christ, but through the harlot who is against Christ, <clears throat> and from the beast who fights against Christ. And that's not to say that everyone else outside of the church is bad. That's certainly not the case. But ultimately, those who put their faith and their trust in the things of the world are putting them in the wrong place. 
And as a result, there's going to be times in which they butt up against Christ and his word. There are going to be times in which we are going to have to choose sides. And there's going to be times in which it looks like the side of Christ is not winning. But ultimately, Christ will triumph. He has power to save. And whether that salvation comes through the overwhelming uh, physical miracles that are described in the book of Revelation, or whether that ultimate triumph comes in a later life, comes at a time in which we currently cannot see, it doesn't matter, and it shouldn't matter to us, because our testimony should be that Christ will triumph, and as long as we were with him, we will be part of that triumph as well. All right. Love the New Testament. I'm grateful for the chance that I've had to, to share it with you. Uh, grateful for the testimony of Christ that is contained uh, within its pages. And for those, grateful for the miracle that this incredible scripture has been passed down for thousands of years. It's not perfect. There's mistakes in it. But there's more than enough there to lead us to Christ, to help us understand him, to deepen our relation our relationship with him and to help us to become more like him and to ultimately return to him. And I pray that we will do so in his holy name, even Jesus Christ. Amen.